0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
1: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: I got cut from the U-17 national team. I got cut from the U-20 national team. I was told I was going to the Olympics by Peter Novak and he never called me back. Like, And I got cut from a World Cup.
1: Welcome to Coffee and Football, I'm Sebastian Alvarado and I'm the host of this long form interview style podcast where I sit down with some of the most interesting profiles involved in the game to learn about their life and career journeys. First and foremost, I'd like to thank each and everyone who's listened so far. The feedback and the response has been beyond expectations, so I thank you for that. On that note, I'd like to ask you for a huge favor. Please subscribe to this on iTunes and write a review, unless you've already done it. It will help tremendously in getting visibility as we grow this initiative one listener at a time. Anyways, enough about that and let's get into this week's guest, Heath Pierce. He's a recently retired player who's played for four different clubs in the MLS. He's represented Shetland in the Danish Superliga, Hansa Rostock in the Bundesliga, and IFK Gothenburg in Allsvenskan in Sweden. He's been capped 35 times with the U.S. national team, and today he's a presenter, writer, and creator on Kick, one of the largest football channels on YouTube, where he also hosts his own show. This is one of the most authentic and open conversations I've had. Heath takes us through a career filled with ups and downs and gives us a true glimpse into the world of professional sports that isn't nearly as glamorous as it oftentimes appears. So on that note, let's dive into it. Welcome Heath to uh, Coffee and Football. Thanks for having me. So, well first, obviously I have to ask, since the theme is Coffee and Football, uh, I read on your Twitter handle that you're a coffee fanatic, so tell me about that and then I want to know how do you typically drink it and give me a few good spots.
0: Wow, that's a lot of pressure from the start, but um, yeah, I love coffee. I'm a daily drinker, there's times I find myself going through phases where I, I think I'm not a coffee person anymore, you know, over caffeine, I'm getting the shakes and things like that, but... No, I I, I like my coffee in so many different ways. You know, that's the best part about coffee. It's like this time of year, this morning, um, I met a friend for coffee on the way into work and it was an iced coffee or a cold brew and something like that where like the temperature dictates kind of that style of drink or the time that you have can dictate that style of drink. I do do everything from espresso to a double espresso to um, a filter coffee and then now there's you know, flat whites have become popular here. I don't use a lot of creamers or anything like that. I, I typically drink my stuff pretty black, but um, the thing that I like the most is actually just a cold brew coffee. That's what I've been really been liking since last summer. I tried a, the brand is called, man, I'm blanking on it now. It must not be that good if I can't remember <laughs> it, but it's actually Whole Foods um, coffee brand. And I can't remember the name of it, but they make this medium roast that turns into a really good, cold brew and I don't know why because maybe it's because it's so potent and strong or something but it's been really really good that I, I just can't get enough of it obviously in the winter I change it up but um, a few good coffee spots so obviously today I went to Think Coffee and I guess it's NoHo or SoHo area um, that's really good uh, we have La Colombe right right where near where I work on Wall Street that's really good it's a cozy little place um, those are probably my two go-to spots here on the east coast anyway
1: cool so how are things today you were just uh we're just chatting a little bit offline quite quite busy with uh with kick tv and the work you're doing there
0: yeah i mean it's a busy time of year obviously we're ramping up in a lot of ways, there's a lot of summer tournaments, right? We've got uh, the Copa Centenario and the Euro Cup and then the Olympics after. So as a brand, it's a huge opportunity for us. Um, add that to the fact that we are going through a rebrand right now, which is actually a unique um, experience for me and an exciting experience for me. Um, so we're busy and uh, also busy just trying to create a really good show and a unique show and kind of move that the evolution of what the mixer is um, in the right direction. Is that something that
1: comes from? Because I know that Kick TV was acquired quite recently from from the MLS. The MLS still has an interest in it, obviously. Um, but is that something that comes from from like the headquarters? And what is the the ultimate goal with it?
0: Well, the ultimate goal is to become the the go to and at the same time alternative voice of uh, the growing game in the US. So we want to be where people turn to when they want to see a short film about um, the history of the game globally. We, we, we talk about the game here in the U S but we also talk about what's going on everywhere, but we share it from a unique American perspective, which I think is extremely different than, than a lot of the other footballing countries around the world. So um, that trickles down from our, uh, our top brass who are all from the creative side of things, filmmakers, document documentarians, Um, short filmmakers, people who've done commercials, we have a lot of that style behind us. And that's the growth aspect of where we're at. We want to make really cool, um, but inclusive content. How did you first get involved? Actually, I got involved four years ago when kick had just started. They did a live show. I was playing here in New York for the Red Bulls. Um, Jimmy Conrad was the host at the time. He was, he was new and, and called me up and was like, Hey, we're doing a live show. Um, it's a YouTube live show. We don't know if anybody's going to watch. I don't think anybody did watch, but they had grand ambitions to do this live show. Um, I think there was also a quota of filling a certain amount of internet content time to get renewals for their grants or whatever the business model was. But um, they asked me to come in, and I, I came in, and I've always had an interest in media and uh, interviews and those types of things. I always prided myself on giving more than just the cliche answers. I always tried to elaborate. I always tried to give a little bit of personality to myself. So they asked me to come in. I came in, it was this really exciting thing. It was like a, a production. um, and it was live and it was, you know, it was an adrenaline rush and I was only on one little segment of it. And I, and I remember leaving and, and, um, well, I actually got a I they told, I was running late. They told me to park my car right outside. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. I came back down. It was like a $200 t- $150 ticket on my car. So I remember leaving and the first thing going, man, I would, I would love to be part of something like that someday. That's really fun interacting with somebody in a natural way, in a, in a cool way and sharing opinions and perspectives of the game. Obviously, once I got to the car and saw that I had a ticket, I was pissed <laughs> off and I was like, I'm never coming here again. I hate these guys. Um, but it was a really cool experience. And I was like, you know, when the time is right, and the opportunity presents itself. Uh, why not? And so here I am. Uh, I was in a, uh, I just left EFCO Gothenburg, uh, in the summer and got a call from Jimmy Conrad and, and the people at Kick and said, Hey, we're kind of looking to, to grow this thing and, and make it bigger. Where your interests at? And at the time I was like, uh, you know, I thought I had four, five, six, seven years left to play. And, but I always told myself there's so many creative, cool things to do in the world, right? I don't want to be the guy who's stuck to playing uh, soccer or football because I got nothing else, or because I'm afraid of the world. And I've always tried to go head on towards everything, and and that worked as a blessing and a curse throughout my career as a player. But at the same time, I was like, you know what? I'd like to be that guy who said, you know what? I'm 31. I know that my best days are behind me. Of course, I can continue to play. You can continue to earn a good living, but what happens if I put that same effort into something new that has longevity, right? That footballing career is such a short shelf life. Yeah. And if you're honest with yourself and you're able to look yourself in the mirror and say, Hey, let's, uh, let's see what else is out there. And you take those opportunities, you take those risks. I think we can create that movement of guys who feel lost in the game or feel they don't have a value, but don't feel they have a value anywhere else. And hopefully um, that will inspire somebody to say, Not to quit playing, but in a way that's like, hey man, like that guy did it. There's, there's, we're not forced to be athletes for the rest of our life. We can take what we had that natural gift to play and then apply that to something new, and make something really cool out of it. So hopefully that's what I can do.
1: I think that's quite interesting because obviously there aren't a lot a lot of players who think alike, right? You know, they just keep pushing it, pushing it. Then and then they get to a place that they're a little lost, almost after their career, don't really know what to do with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You, You you see guys. And I don't want to speak specifically about those guys, but I saw a lot of guys do that, you know? It was like they were just dangling on and you could see physical pain that they were in. You could see mental and emotional pain of just the fact that, like, you're not even happy doing this, you know? You're not having fun. You're just doing this because this is what you know and I respect that because you're doing something that most people dream of, right? And and, and I respect that on that level, but at the same time, there's so many cool things. And, and what got you to this level, if applied to something else, can get you to that level of something else that is fulfilling in the same ways. Um, and recently I did my first in-studio broadcast down in Miami um, with BN for the U.S. Guatemala game. And I got back to my hotel room after and I was buzzing. Like my whole body was like trembling and shaking. it, And, and, and I was like, I know this feeling and i hadn't had that feeling in a long time where i went home after a game and i couldn't sleep all night you know i woke up in the morning and it felt like a hangover cuz my adrenaline had just wiped me out and i hadn't slept well and i was like you know what that's that's what i think exists in other worlds right it's not just football or soccer that you're going to get that in um and that if you apply that same passion towards something else you can have that same emotion and that same drive and that same adrenaline type feeling that says like wow this is this is awesome this is great this is worth it and um that was kind of i've had some of those moments with with kick but it's like those are the moments that make you say hey like you can create that same rise and that same feeling again in something else you just have to be willing to take that chance
1: yeah take me through a typical day in the life of heath pierce what time do you get up what types of routines do you have any any media you consume and and so on
0: um, well I, I get I, I like to wake up usually around 645 um, earlier than that when the sun is up but uh, during the rough months that I've been through actually this is my first winter being in a cold city so to speak because everywhere else as an athlete when you're playing in the winter you're on training camp somewhere warm so you never really feel what a long winter is like right it gets broken up quite easy but uh, 645. Um, I typically like to go for a run if I don't get a run and I, I have to get one, some sort of workout during the day, but, um, get up, get moving my, I have a wonderful wife that makes me breakfast every morning. We make a homemade, my wife is Middle Eastern. We make a homemade yogurt, have some scrambled eggs and a coffee. I mix it up. Actually, uh, my building is built into a roastery, so we actually have fresh coffee in our building every morning oh, nice. served to us, which is such a blessing, right? But, um, I have that. Then I start my walk or bike to work and, um, I take the ferry in every day. I took the path train for a little while. I live in Hoboken, which is very, a very broy place, you know, uh, <laughs> in what sense? and what's just a very in, intense bar post-college, like Neverland, don't want to grow up type scene where it's like, you know, pretty, a lot of testosterone from like Thursday to Sunday there. Um, but my day usually, I'm, I'm in usually around 8.30 to 8.45. Uh, we're prepping for 9 to 9.30 uh, shoot time. My call time is usually around 8.45 in the morning. Um, we shoot our daily video followed by our daily Facebook video that we do, uh, followed by like a Twitter video, whatever it is that we have planned for that day. And then we break that up. I try to get out and, you know, fortunately I'm down on Wall Street. So I, and we're right off of Water Street. So I try to go for a little walk, clear my head, recover, and then start prepping for the next day and what we're going to talk about and what aspects of the game, what's happening, trying to stay relevant. But by the way, and I forgot this, I, I listened to quite a few podcasts. I've, I've actually only recently gotten into podcasts. I couldn't wrap my head around them for a while. I just didn't understand them. Uh, and now I can't get enough of them. Right. And it's one of the coolest things in the world. Just kind of like what this is, just two people talking and, and what's more kind of, Engaging or comfortable for somebody than them experiencing something unique that they do themselves in their own day to day, right? Just conversations. And so I listen to Bill Simmons podcast. I listen to uh, Football Weekly, yep. Guardian. I listen to the Football Ramble, which is also one a little bit more evergreen content, but uh, and surface level, but great humor. Um, and then I listen to Ninety Nine Percent Invisible. It's a unique one. Some of them are, and they're all short and digestible. Um and that's pretty much it, so then my day kind of goes through working through the creative process of how we're gonna shoot the next video, where we're gonna shoot it, what it's gonna be about, and what we can what's a unique way to tell it um it's a it's an evolving process of of how we're doing it. I'm still fresh to the kind of being on the other side of the camera um now or I guess on the other side of the game um but then. We wrap work around six, seven, and I head home and have dinner. I'm in school right now, so usually I'll have dinner and I'll get into my school work, which is about two to three hours every night. What are you studying? Um, it's a business, deg- like a business degree that I'm pursuing um, with an emphasis on like project management, global project management, so kind of the uh, supply chains, import, export type stuff. So I don't know what I'm going to do with that, <laughs> but um, it's definitely fun. Where do you do it? Uh, Southern New Hampshire University. So it's an official partner of Major League Soccer, education partner. And I qualified for a scholarship based on the program they put together. So it takes a lot of that financial burden off to where, you know, sometimes for the longest time, I was just like, I'm not really mentally into it. So what's the point if I'm just going to do classes, maybe not pass, whatever. Now I have the wherewithal and the mental capacity away from my career to focus on that when I get home. And try to finish this education so I can have a degree. You know, i be proud of that. Make my parents proud. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty much what a day looks like. There, it's obviously a few variables throughout the day because um, we do have quite a bit of travel and stuff too, of uh, spending time with players or, you know, shooting up at MLS or shooting on location somewhere. But that's pretty much what my day looks like at the moment.
1: I want to talk a little bit about your upbringing and, uh, and and start so you're from from California from Modesto which I know nothing about so uh, in order to get to know you what what should I know about that place
0: there's good people there no there's actually uh, actually a huge uh, soccer culture there it's an AG area an agriculture area in the Central Valley of California so we have a number of first, second generation Hispanic and Portuguese farmers with a background in culture and soccer. So we grew up with people who knew the game, uh, fortunately. And that wasn't always the case around the country. You know, we were fortunate enough to have that. It's very blue collar. The town has changed a lot over the years. It's mostly a low income part of California. It's probably one of the last areas of California that's affordable, uh, so to speak. It's Sits in the Central Valley, so about an hour and fifteen minutes east to southeast of San Francisco. Uh, you go through the foothills and you drop into the valley, and you're in the valley from the other side, which is the Sierra Nevada mountain range that leads you towards Nevada. Um, and so it's a it's a unique spot in that you're not actually anywhere cool, but you're close to cool places, right? So if you lived at the beach, it'd take you a long time to get to the mountains. Whereas we are kind of in the spot where it's like your day-to-day is not that cool to look at, but you can get to the beach in an hour and fifteen, you can get to a, big cities, Sacramento and San Francisco in a short amount of time. And you can get up to the mountains and snowboard. So, uh, you have, we have lakes, rivers, mountains, you have a little bit of everything. And, and that was a, a unique perspective growing up is having all that around you, which is why California can be so great, right? You have all four seasons within a few hours of each other.
1: What's the most important advice or, or lesson that you got from your parents that you bring with you today?
0: You know, my parents, we were four kids and my parents never had a lot of money, but they always made it work and we never, ever didn't have what we needed. We didn't always have what we wanted, um, but we we always had what we needed and that was a really unique thing. And 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 the main thing that I, I took from growing up um, that I look back fondly on with my parents is that for a long time, my my brothers and I and my sister, none of us were that close because we had nothing in common. because our parents never forced us to have to do things together. It was very much just like whatever you're going to do, pursue it and pursue it. Right. Don't worry about it. And so I used to get jealous of two of my closest friends or brothers and they're, they're a year and a half or two years apart and they went everywhere together and they became my best friends just by proxy. Right. Uh, I hated the younger brother and he became my best friend in time because we were both like honorary kids and we were just like, well, if we team up, we're a stronger team to go after everybody else. And, and i i i always envied that growing up because it was like that was like the 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 prototype sibling right or the prototype parents people were so close to their parents or whatever and we were all given the freedom and right to be individuals and to pursue the industries and the goals so long as we were doing it wholeheartedly and and they gave us that opportunity and supported it. The only rule they had was that if you're going to stop doing something, you got to finish out the year doing it. So if you signed up for karate, you got to do karate for the rest of the year. If you hate it after a day, finish finish the year, finish the season in soccer, and then you can move on to something else. And that was a unique perspective. They never th- pushed their will. My dad wasn't a dad that said, you know, he didn't try to live through us. He never pushed us too hard. He was never like the dads who were yelling at their kids on the field. They were just really supportive and did it in a way that was unique, to where it motivated you more than it made you kind of stagnant. It was a it was a way that they would push you in the right way, but never over push you till you so you burned out. So that's probably the biggest thing that I took is just that overwhelming support, but structure. Right? It wasn't like a yeah, if you want to quit, just quit. We we lo- we love you. No, it was like okay, but we made the rule. We made an agreement that if you're going to sign up for this. You do it till the end of the year. And that's usually by the end of it, you love it, right? It's like that discomfort of being a kid. Um, you're out of your comfort zone. You don't like it for a day or maybe you got bullied or picked on or something. And then you finish out the year and you're just like, I can't wait for the next year of whatever it was. And that was a, a really unique um, way, I think, that hopefully I can apply to, to my children. And you got involved with soccer
1: pretty early on, I assume. What was the moment when, it, when you kind of realized that, hey, I'm actually pretty good at this. I can I can take next steps.
0: Uh, I would say that it honestly wasn't until I was probably about 11 years old, 10 years old. I was pulled. I was living in Oregon at the time. I was pulled up to an older team, um, and the coach did a unique thing and said, "You're, you know, we're going to pull you up um, to this age group, and we're going to train you every day with these older kids that are much bigger, stronger, faster than you because we see something in you." And there was a lot of problems at the time in youth soccer back then, where parents thought that you were taking an opportunity away from the kid whose age group that was, and therefore he wasn't going to get a scholarship. And like, you, there was all kinds of issues that my mom and dad had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Where like, parents didn't like us because I was playing up a, a year, and I wasn't even playing a lot of games. But they, they, this coach up there who was a former Portland Timbers player and I believe coach at one time. His name's John Bain. Saw something in me and started to mold and shape me and give me that extra training, and that was probably the first time that I realized, okay, I'm a little bit, you know, better than than some kids, or I have a little bit. Somebody sees something in me, and you don't think that at the time, obviously, but you realize that, oh, well, these kids are older, and I can I'm starting to hang with them, and I'm starting to figure things out, and that was when I first really figured it out. I look back, and I've asked my friends these questions all along, and my friends' parents and my parents about. I said, when I was, when we were young, I don't, I remember looking up to my friends in sports. I remember looking up to my peers and going, these guys are really good. And I would go home and ask them and, you know, over the, over the years. And they said, no, you were always, you know, you were always, um, you always had more potential and you were always a little more talented than some of the other kids. And I don't remember it that way at all, but yeah, it's kind of nice looking back on that stuff. It's, it's, it's kind of fun.
1: Well, it is pretty early on. I mean, at 10 and 11, that, that they would have seen that already then, you know. Um, so then from there, wh- when when did it start getting a little more serious and, and where, where did you end up?
0: So from there, um, the last year that I was in Oregon was when the Olympic development program started. I played up a year in that. And that's when the fuss really started happening with parents, where it's like, just hold him out a year till he's his own age group. This is the you're, it's a state team; these kids deserve it. It's their age. You're taking away opportunities. Um, and again, I was kind of just um, a squad player then, just playing up a year, right? I, I wasn't better than those kids. They were what I remember as much better than me. And from there, uh, I played in the state team, went to the regional camp. Uh, The next year we moved back down to California, and that's when I really started to understand, not that I was better than people, but we had a different perspective of the game. We had a different idea of what it could be. I wanted to work really hard. I wanted to outwork everybody. I wanted to outrun everybody. I wanted to be out faster than everybody, and that's what I started to notice, is that I took it more seriously. Um, In a fun way, of course, I wasn't like a machine at 12 or 13, but I moved back down to California, and then that's when I played on the state team for my year. And then that's where you started to become part of this identification process. So like state team to the well, first year district team to the state team to the regional pool, regional team, national pool, national team. And from there, that national team, they started the residency program, which was originally the Project 2010, where we were going to the US was going to win the World Cup in 2010 based on this program, which... I had high hopes and it was extremely ambitious, but it gave me the opportunity to go. So the idea was to simulate an environment that the rest of the world was doing at 15 years old. If I had stayed home in California, most of my, a lot of my, not my closest friends, but a lot of the teammates were kind of into the high school scene, the partying, training is like kind of a joke. It's some kid's dad and he can't corral all of us to take it serious. Whereas the rest of the world, they're preparing kids to be pros. And I didn't have that. So they created this program and I fortunately had the opportunity to go and move to Florida and be part of this program where you train every day and you train IMG. IMG, exactly. Um, at the time it was called Bradenton, uh, Bulletary Tennis Academy and we were on the grounds and, and, uh, we were on their kind of facilities and then it became an IMG purchased it and became this. it's It's a, it's obviously a massive thing now. I mean, obviously IMG is huge, but that's what, um, created the environment. Obviously there was quite a few rocky steps from there. But, um, at that point I was put in a position to say, to, to, to really put my career in my own hands, which is kind of intimidating for a 15 year old, but you were at least training every day and getting the reps you need to develop. And you stayed there for how long? I was there, uh, for probably about two years. So, so second semester of sophomore year of high school through high school. So two and a half years. And then you went on to, uh, to college. I went on to college from there. So the last year in the residency program, I broke my leg playing in a summer PDL game, trying to, uh, I wasn't getting any games with the national team at the time. So they said, well, why didn't you go play with the academy? Because they had a soccer academy there so you can get games. Because I wasn't getting any games. It was just zero time and I was frustrated. And, and it was a hard thing to be away from home and you're never playing in any of the youth national team games, even the friendly games, they're training for the Youth World Cup and and molding a squad, and I was kind of left out, to where I wasn't getting any games. And at that point, games start becoming important, right? Not so much when you're nine, nine, Um, So I started training with this team. Stayed over in the summer. Uh, they they started shaping me into a left back because they thought, okay, I was playing holding midfielder there, which was just odd. I'd never done that because I'd been a striker my whole life. And then they were like, oh, well, to go to the next level, he, we pro- he's probably best chance of being a left back. He's left footed. They're rare doesn't necessarily have the talent to be a left midfielder. He's not that crafty, but you know, build him into left back. So I was like, okay, cool. Ended up breaking my leg and ended up with not a lot of options. Uh, college wise, I went, ended up going to the university of Portland on a, on a scholarship based on a favor from the coach to Clive Charles, who was also the under 23 national team coach at the time who said, Hey, I need a defender. Do you have anybody that's still available? And John Ellinger, who was my coach at the time said, Oh yeah, I have this guy. He's coming back from a broken leg. And, um, he's got a lot of potential so they took it just on that there wasn't any recruiting involved and the only other thing that i had of of interest was university of southern florida which was john hackworth who's also become like a professional coach and with the national team and was the philadelphia union that kind of stuff so it's a small world looking back on it but i didn't have a lot of options and then i went to portland (laughs)
1: And then you went straight from college essentially to become professional yeah and uh, ended up at uh, fc nordjylland yeah is that how you say it
0: yes it's i mean that's the swedish pronunciation exactly. of it but it's <laughs> uh northland northland yeah again okay. so not the helland but the shilland how did that come about and
1: where was the
0: the mls and and all this so i had just finished my third season in college first semester. And well, prior to that, if we rewind after my second season, I had kind of a poor season. I was going through some health issues with like, I was in Europe with the youth national team, um, ended up getting shingles, which is like a terrible pain of, which is just a form of herpes, um, that attacks your, uh, along your nerve lines, um, when your immune system's broken down. So from there, got sick, got sent home. Ended up developing exercise-induced asthma. They found like traces of mono in my system. It was a really weird time. So that whole season, like I couldn't breathe. There was all kinds of issues. Um, went through that year. But that summer, I started to feel good again. Went home, started working. Uh, I was cleaning windows on new construction houses, like scraping stucco off the windows. And that was one job. And my parents said to me, hey, Heath, whatever you save up will match to help you try to go to Europe and try out for a team. So I went online. I wrote a template email basically and sent it to every agent in the world that I could find, just blasted it. And I had like two responses. Um, and then I, I just kept on blasting these emails and I got two responses. One of them was some guy who was like not an agent. And the other one was like, Hey, I'm an agent. Come to Scotland. Um, I can get you in at Rangers. So I'm like, okay, cool. I I finally did it. So I, I was uh, scraping the windows. I was uh, working as a mascot for, uh, Modesto which is an ag area and so they have this mascot that's part of like the water safety because they have a lot of canals that water the fields um, water, water safety guy and so you dress in this giant uh, frog in the <laughs> middle of summer in California Central Valley heat is uh, more than 100 degrees um, and I would go to these elementary schools and do this like dance thing and it was like the most embarrassing thing in the world wearing this giant frog costume I did all that and I was able to save like seven, 800 bucks my parents matched that went to Denmark. The guy was totally full shit. You know, I was, I went and trained with Greenock Morton who were in the third division at the time. And I remember we, they were doing fitness in preseason. And the coach is like, oh, don't stay with the team. Do it. You know, like do your own thing. And I was like lapping around these guys. It was semi pro, right? They were like a bunch of like beer drinking, like chubby dudes running really slow at the time. Now Greenock's in the second division. But, um, from there, um, had two days left was almost my birthday my college was calling me saying we've got preseason you got to get back if you're coming back well i got it somehow got in touch with this agent in denmark who was like come out so i flew out there i didn't have any money left so i didn't have room for hotels or anything they put me up in a hotel long story short had a great week couldn't agree on a contract went back and played one more semester but during that time they had you know identified me as the guy that january went over so i mean that's a long story made less long, but um, the team was doing really poorly, and I actually played a really, really good week. of tr- it, it was a, it was probably in my career one of the best full weeks of training I'd ever had. Where like it's a blackout experience where you don't like you're hitting shots and they're just going top corner, and you're just like, don't let anybody know that's not real because like <laughs> you couldn't do that again, and I was doing it again and again, and like it was so crazy. And then the president. Alan K. Peterson said, I'm going to set up an inner squad scrimmage so I can come out and see him and uh, saw it and was like, "Nah, I'm not impressed and offered me like to live in somebody's basement and like the minimum wage you can make there. And I was like, "Nah, my education's worth more than that in the States than coming over for that. Um, so I left and walked off, went back and played one more semester during that time. By the end of it, they were like, OK, we want him. We can offer him a legit deal. And then after that season, I, I joined, joined the team in Denmark and that's how I started my career. How was that? I mean,
1: you go from scraping windows to not too long after that, you're a professional player, which has probably been your goal for for quite a few years. Uh, how would you describe that, that first time when you're there and
0: what was the experience like? It's funny because when it finally happens, you don't, it happens so fast and the pressure ramps up so quickly, at least for me anyway, you don't stop to think, wow. Like, look at me now. I was just scraping windows, right? It's easy to talk about it now, but at the time you're just like sink or swim, right? I've got an opportunity. I signed a six month contract and I need to prove myself. I need to make a career of this. So I just went after it and you just go, you know, you don't stop and think like, wow, you know, like, look how far I've made it. You know, like this is a fairy tale for me. No, like it's, you don't have the time to think about that. You've been signed. You've been given a contract and now you got to prove yourself. And every day goes into like pouring your life into every single training and every single match. And, um, fortunately I was able to make a career of it. I wasn't, I was always on like the bubble of being good. I was always a good athlete. I was usually faster than most guys on the team, more athletic, but I was never viewed. I was always on the fringe of the, I got cut from the U 17 national team. I got cut from the U 20 national team. I was told I was going to the Olympics by Peter Novak and he never called me back. Like, (laughs) and I got cut from a world cup. So it's like been one of those chips on the shoulder type thing, but you never really stop and think about it. until you look back and see, Oh, that's kind of a, a statistic, you know? Um, but I think that's kind of the, 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 the mentality I was able to apply in my career where it's just like, you don't stop and look back and say, wow, because I fear that if I had that mentality, I might've been content just to sign that deal, you know, just to be like, wow, I've been swimming against the current all this time. And now I've made it, you know, where in my mind, it was like, quite honestly, like, fuck the Danish super league. I want to play at Arsenal I want to play at Barcelona and that was where my mind was at and it wasn't always realistic but it was like that chasing the the carrot type thing that I think pushed me as far as you know of course I could have made some decisions better or done things differently in my career but it pushed me to that mentality where it's just like never be satisfied just keep going forward
1: which then led you I mean you were you were there for what two and a half and a half years and then you ended up at Hansa Rostock yeah how was that different from the Danish Super League
0: it differed night and day so you're coming from Denmark, this happy socialist society where everybody's happy and there's never really a bad day, right? It's like this idea that soccer is just kind of what you do, you know, and those were the guys I was around. I wasn't on it. I wasn't at FC Copenhagen or Bronby at the time who were just dominating everybody and had all the pressure where it's like if they were out, the media would talk. And, you know, we used to hear about these guys where it's like, oh, man, these guys are legends, you know, the people the way people talk about them. Um, we were on a small team that was a new, young club, so there was not really a lot of pressure. You know, our goals, the first year was survival. The next two years was like finish fifth to seventh. If we can sneak to fourth, perfect. Fifth to seventh, successful year. Um, We had a young team. And then going to Germany, we opened our first game away to Bayern Munich, which is just like a pretty big change. And Were you starting that game? Yeah, played left back that game. And I spent most of my time actually in Germany playing left midfield um, but I played left back for the first five games of that season. And it was just different in the pressure. You know, we lost to Bayern Munich 3-0. And our goalkeeper made two really bad errors. Not to say that they weren't going to beat us because they were. Um, they had the ball the whole game. And after it was one of those games. After the game, it wasn't that we played that bad. You're just like, those guys are really good. You know, it wasn't like we, we put in a shift. We worked really hard. We fought together. We did the best we could. But this was the year after Bayern had lost didn't win the championship Stuttgart had won that year so they went out and bought all kinds of players and they were so good what players do you have there? uh Ribery they brought in Luca Tony you know and they they won a couple years straight at that point I think um but you know it was a really unique time um because we lost to the best team in Germany and the next morning we were back in Rostock in the forest running as punishment. And to me, that was like, what? Like, what is that even like I'm coming from Denmark where it's like, yeah, we actually trained quite a bit in Denmark. And that was great for a young player, 20 years old to be training uh, two or three days a week, um, double trainings. Um, but here we were training double days almost all the time. And when you lost, you're punished in the forest to where you would run and you would do these laps. And the coach would just stand there and stare at you as you passed him on each lap. And we'd all look with excitement at him like is this the lap that he's going to say stop running? And he sometimes it would be thirty minutes, sometimes it'd be an hour. And he, you'd approach him finally when you were done, and he just put his hand up so arrogantly at, and not say anything, just put his hand up like it was a stop sign, and be like, okay, that's enough. And you're just like, I am in a different place, you know. And when you talk about bonuses, when you talk, I mean, it's a bonus-driven league, so you realize very quickly that you're alone. You realize that Friday before the game people are going after each other because they want to get the start. They will, they will take your legs out so that they can get that bonus. You're talking about food on people's plates and that very dog eat dog world, which I wasn't used to and hadn't experienced. And so it was a little bit of a learning experience, but it was an unbelievable one. How
1: was the, um, the level? I mean, obviously by Munich is, is in a class on its, on its own, but how, how was your adaptation? And, uh, how did you see yourself in comparison to like the bigger players and what were the,
0: like, what are the main differences? Well, on like a general level, you realize that the game is pretty, you can compete with just about anybody. I played against Philip Lom for those 90 minutes and I was like, I can play with that guy. You know, I, I beat him in a sprint a few times. I got around and got a few crosses off. Um, but you realize it's those small details that make all the difference at that level. Everybody can play. Um, how fast does your, brain process decisions. What decisions do you make? And instead of passing the ball to the guy, are you actually passing it to him? Or you is there a specific foot you're trying to put it on? You know, is it good enough that you play a square ball or are you supposed to lead that guy? And they had all those details nailed down to where when a sequence of events happened in a game, it was a series of players making the right play at the exact right moment, as opposed to our team where you could get three, four, five, ten 10 passes together. And when it came for that one that mattered the most, or the one that would really put your team in a position to score or create a chance, we fell short. And it wasn't always that last pass, but it was somewhere along the line you, you fell short. And it made you respect that process of getting those reps after training of just like by yourself. Go cross the ball 10 times, 20 times, 50 times. Go pass against the wall. Go work with somebody one-on-one defending. All those little tiny details that you as a player, you watch on TV and you go, man... I could do that. And then you you actually experience it and you go, okay, that's one notch above where I'm at and I've got to work to get that.
1: Right. And you ended up staying for a couple of seasons there? Two years. Yeah.
0: How'd you do overall? I actually quite enjoyed the time there. It was a It was a harsh time because I was very alone. You know, I was very alone in the sense that I think it would be a different process now. In what like, way? because players have voices now, right? Right. I could go get on a podcast and say my opinion uh, of what's really happening and have a voice. Whereas there in former East Germany, where Rostock is, you had one big newspaper build that controlled the voices and the egos and the personalities and the characters of the players. And that's not a knock on build. They're doing their job, but I never had a voice. So if they wanted to say, oh, Heath was shit and he's got a bad attitude. That's an entire city that's saying, you know, Heath is shitty, he has a bad attitude. Whereas now I've got Twitter, I've got whatever. I can connect to fans. I can say my piece. I have a voice. I have a reason, um, which can also hurt you just as much now. But it also gives you a chance to to share your your opinions, which not that it would have made a better experience, but um overall it was hot and cold all the time. You know, it was a very high pressure environment. We went through four or five coaches during that short period. Lots of instability. We relegated after the first year. We were five points clear with like five games left to go in the season in the first Bundesliga. And we totally shit the bed and went down. Um, And they kept the coach, which makes no sense to me, right? You keep a coach. He's in a position to succeed. He's shown he can succeed and then fails and you keep him the next year. And you've got a lot of pissed off players that didn't like this guy. Um, They kept him five, six games into the next season or however many games. And then they let him go, which, you know, you've gone through a whole process of another preseason. And... There's a lot of distrust in the locker room and then you let him go. You bring in a new guy who now has to figure it all out. And so it was just like this tumbling effect that we were basically, we were never really fighting relegation the second Bundesliga, the second year. I don't remember anyway, um, but we were never good. We were just at the bottom. It was a terrible season. Um, So overall, personally, there's a lot um, I could have done better. There's a lot. I wish I was more patient because one of the downsides of me saying, I want to go play at Real Madrid at Barcelona at Arsenal was that if I didn't play a game, I thought, oh my gosh, this is a domino effect. This is going to affect here. This is going to affect my national team standings. This is going to affect the long-term projection of my career. And so I was very impatient at times and kind of had a lot. I've always had a lot of trust issues with coaches. So that led to um, some bad decisions in my career. Did you have
1: any butting heads with a coach or did you run into any
0: sort of trouble on that end or did you just remain patient and, and stay quiet? I definitely did. I definitely did. You know, we all have a different perspective of ourselves than other people that are working with us, especially coaches. Um, but I had a unique experience after the first five, six games because I got benched and I, I went to the coach and I said, well, can you explain to me why? And he said, I can't explain to you why, but I've got our video team putting together all your touches on the whole year. Um, and we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about it so I can show you where you've fallen short, um, this year. And I was actually, in, actually at the time in most of the newspapers and stuff, myself and the right back were the only ones anybody was saying good things about. Because we actually started the first five games of the season with no wins. And of course, as a defender, you can't be like, yeah, I played really good when your team continues to lose. But it's quite often it can be circumstantial. Mm -hmm. Um, And he sat me down and he showed me X amount of clips. And there was one time in that whole video that he had a camera on me or things that I was involved in and was able to show me something that I did bad. And then he started, then he got to the end and he's like, Oh, well there's, you know, there's, there's other video and stuff like this and started like backtracking. And and from there I was like, I don't trust this guy. And it created a lot of problems to where I felt that I constantly needed to stand up for myself, which I shouldn't have done. Um, so sometimes I, I never got in a fight. I never yelled at him and never anything. I just, you know, the winter window came and I said, you know, for my own ambitions, if I'm not playing, I've got to, I've got to move on. And,
1: Did that have anything to do with you being an American over there or was it pretty much the same
0: across the board? Uh, I do truly think that in those circumstances, we are the easy targets, the uh, non-domestic players, because we don't have a voice to stand up for ourselves, right? I don't even understand German at this point. I do now, but at the time I didn't. Um, And everything actually changed for me um, in terms of the opinion of me when I learned German. It was like this acceptance of me Mm -hmm. um, and it was really unique, but... I think for at the time, I I think that I was the the scapegoat, the easy way out in a lot of ways. Of course, maybe people had another opinion of that. But for me, I thought that I was actually playing pretty good. I was playing pretty well. I had the right attitude. I had the right mentality. And I asked him to just show me where I don't deserve to be on the field or show me where i have and it wasn't even so much show me why I'm not playing. It was more of just like, show me where I can improve. Right. It wasn't done in an arrogant way. It was just like, okay. In a very humble way of saying like, show me where I can improve. And they weren't able to show me that. And that left a sour taste in my mouth to where I kind of distrusted anything that happened. And that leads to a pretty negative mentality. Um, when you don't play, you're just like, oh, something here is corrupt. And you, you start to have that kind of negativity that's just resonates inside of you. And it's hard to get past when you're alone in a place that's far from home and you don't have an agent that's taking care of you. Um, so you didn't have an agent, I did have an agent, but he wasn't taking care of me. Yeah. He was, the agent would tell me like, go into the office and say this. And looking back now, I'm just like, that's your job. You know, your job is to keep me right. And the team separated so that when you speak as a voice, you're representing me, but I'm never the one that's out there on a limb Saying stuff, especially at the age that I was at. And so I ended up going in and saying, you know, if I don't play, I need to make a move. And then they came back saying, well, you're a national team player now. So if you want to move, someone's got to buy you, even though they signed me on a free free uh, transfer. and It just became this ugly thing where it was like they went to the press and said I was never playing for the club again after six months. We came back from training camp. They said, we're going to training camp. We'll see how this goes. If we don't see you in our plans when we get back, we'll work it out so you can leave. Come back from training camp. I go in to have the meeting. They said, um, yeah, okay, so here's the deal. You're not in our plans anymore. And as far as we're concerned, and this is pretty much verbatim, you're never going to play here again, ever. And so you can leave. But the catch is that somebody has to buy you. So obviously this is like late January. I hadn't played a ton. I hadn't played that whole half season. I'd played some, but but not the like all the way through. No one was going to do that, right? You went on a free to Hansa Rostock, one of the smaller teams in the Blue League, and nobody's going to just swoop in and be like, yeah, we'll buy him." You know, like there wasn't enough to grab onto. There wasn't enough to like sink your teeth into in terms of what I've shown. What I, what I've shown. And so uh, from there, it was a month that I was on the outside. Um, I was just training with the team still, but I was never going to be playing again. And then one month later, they called me in and they were like, well, we think you've had a really great attitude and... uh We want to put you back in the team. And they had gone to the media and said, Heath's never playing here again. Like gone to the media and said, he's done. as far as we're concerned, he's done here. And one month later, I came on at halftime in a game. And I was just like, this is really crazy. You know, this is a really weird scenario. And that's kind of how it played out with coaching changes. You know, we had a young coach come in and you didn't know what he was going to do. And it's just that inconsistency that was hard. And how did the exit then happen? Um, My contract was up. Okay. So I ended up staying there for the full two years of my contract. And we had this guy coach come in, um, who had been the coach, I don't know, in the eighties or nineties there and was like trying to do this whole like media like thing where it's like, throw the players out that aren't part of the plans. And so they made up all these things about players where it's like, they kicked me out with like two months left in the season to go play with the second team. Because they said I faked an injury and was no longer part of their plans. But they went to the media and fabricated this whole thing. Again, this is what I'm talking about with a voice. That was just like, yeah, he's a bad guy. He's a bad apple in the locker room. Where it's like, I, you know, I've I've had my issues with coaches. Because I've always had trust issues with coaches since my childhood. But like, I was never a bad guy in the locker room. Like the locker room was like my place. I loved, I got along with my teammates really well. I tried to always have great positive energy. And so they did that. And again, I, I had no opportunity to say like, hold on a second, that's not what happened. I don't. I couldn't call a press conference or something like that. And so I just took it in stride, uh, left there, and then signed a contract in Turkey, actually, um, which fell through the night that I signed it at Varsaspor. The year they ended up winning the Turkish Championship, it fell through somehow. It was another crazy story. Which, if you want to hear it, I'll tell it to you. But go ahead, please. Oh man, okay. So it's the last day of the transfer window and I get a call from my agent. They say, who was your agent by the way? This was James Grant sports at the time. So Lyle Yorks was my agent. I was dealing with a guy. I think his name was James um, based out of their London offices, called me and said, Hey, we've got a deal for you in, 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 in Turkey. It's the last day of the transfer window. I was a free transfer, but apparently it meant something in Turkey where even if you were out of contract, the player license has to be turned in prior to the close of the window or yep. something like that. Something weird. Um, that's different than other places where it's just like, you can sign them anytime. Um, so, uh, I go, I get on a plane, a flight to Turkey, I get picked up in a car. Um, uh, before I get in the car, I, this guy comes up to me, shakes my hand and says, Hey Heath, I'm the agent that's going to be doing this deal. So the agent James in London wasn't going to be able to make it out to Turkey in time. So now I've got this guy, he's Romanian living in Turkey with a Turkish wife. Um, in, in southern turkey and he goes i'm going to be doing this deal with you and the deal was x amount of dollars plus this whole thing that we had to figure out with taxes because everything was negotiated net but coming from the u.s the u.s has access to up to 38 of your income right so nothing is net for an american it's it's you can still have to pay taxes to the u.s and so we were trying to work through that to say like, you're negotiating a net, but that's not really what I'm going to net out. And it was this process. So they agreed on all these terms while we're driving, we're in the car, it's getting dark out. We're driving. Normally you can take a ferry from Istanbul to Bursa just across the water. And instead we're driving it around because we didn't, the ferry wasn't available. They had told me that they, we could have taken the owner's helicopter, but it wasn't available also like these things. So like somebody, a representative from the club was driving us in a car, me and this agents in the front seat. We're about an hour into this drive and I just hear this crying from the front seat. And I'm like, this is so weird. You know, like I'm so uncomfortable. I don't know what's going on here. They're speaking in Turkish the whole time. And he is hysterically crying. Not like a subtle cry, hysterically crying. And I don't know what they're saying to each other, the driver and the passenger, or this agent at the time. And he turns around and tells me, he goes, my father just died. I'm like this is terrible. Like I feel so bad for this guy and I'm in Turkey with nobody that I know and nobody that I trust. And this guy's father just died. So he goes on to explain to me that it's his father-in-law and his wife had been telling him, don't leave, you know, because this guy was, this man was sick. And from there, I'm like, there's this ultimate pressure now, right? This guy has left and missed the passing of his father-in-law. To get this deal done to ultimately provide for his family right so we arrive to the training grounds and right away it's like bursa tv is there bursa has their own 24-hour television channel and they're there with cameras live and they're like sign this and i'm like huh They're like, sign it. And it's a Turkish contract. I'm like, I'm not going to sign this. I haven't even seen... It's in the Turkish language. I haven't seen anything. They're like, okay, well, for the cameras, do this whole thing where, you know, sign it, blah, blah, blah. Just sign a blank piece of paper whatever. So anyways, we get to that point. That clears out and we get negotiating and the deal looks quite a bit different. Um, The numbers were the same, but this whole like tax issue became this prevalent thing. And so at the beginning... They're calling my agent in the UK who's calling this agent back. And then he's presenting this idea of how we can sort this thing out. And I was all for it. So this goes on through the night. So now we're like 2 a.m. And I'm just, they're, they're not giving me things in English. They haven't agreed on these, these terms that we'd agreed before I got on the flight. By this point, the agent is now sitting on the other side of the table and it's just me. And it's like four board of director, director guys, the, the, the vice president who, whose son I'm still friends with till today because he went to ucla in california and was kind of like the translator of the whole thing and now they're just like yelling at me so finally we get into this room they say this is the deal we'd finally gotten really close and i said okay let me call my agent and make sure that this works for him this is my representative he knows the legalities of all this stuff he'll he'll give the green light when i say this one of the older men who's from the board of directors goes fuck your agent and gets up and walks off out of the room. And then two people storm out after him. And I'm like, we're so close. What's going on? So I walk out and I'm like, I tell the agent my, that I'm with, I say, listen, I'm done, man. I'm done. I can't do this. So eventually we end up. I end up saying no. I was like, you know, gut instinct tells me this whole day has gone wrong. You know, like this isn't supposed to happen, like, which is a hard thing to do because the contract is awesome, right? It was a great contract. Like financially it would have been great. But something inside of me was like, this isn't the move you're supposed to be making. So we go back to the hotel at this point, the actual owner of the club's son or somebody's calling us like saying, what's it going to take to get this deal done? Blah, blah. And I keep on saying like, well, I've been disrespected. I'm uncomfortable. This is more of like a principle thing where I'm just not comfortable signing here. It's not about the money anymore or the contract or the details. And so I end up leaving. Uh, uh, I mean, we end up getting off the phone that night. I, I go to sleep. It's like three, four in the morning. I'm getting up at seven to take the ferry back to Istanbul. Well, I'm getting up at like 6. The, the, we're leaving the hotel at 7. At 7.30, the agent still hasn't come down. So I'm like, man, what, do I gotta, what am I going to do? So we go. He finally shows up. We go to the ferry. The ferry's sold out. <laughs> so he's like, all right, let's go back to the hotel. We'll get some brec- breakfast. We'll hang out for the day. Catch the ferry home. Fly home. End of discussion. We go back. We're having breakfast at the hotel. And we get this guy. He walks up and goes, uh, are you Heath Pierce? And I go, yeah. He goes, I'm the team doctor. I'm here to take you to get your medical. And I was like, oh. nobody had told him that the deal didn't happen. So this guy shows up and, and he's gonna go take me through a medical to, to do the deal. I'm like, I'm sorry, man. Like, actually, the deal didn't happen. So this guy's like all confused and it's like this whole translation thing going on. And finally, an hour after that, we get a call and the deal is perfect. Exactly what we originally agreed on. Let's do the deal. So I go, I show up, I sign the deal, jersey made everything name on it, taking all these pictures and taking with like the mascot and all these things. And, uh, the translator that they had kind of like hired on for me to get settled, who kind of like takes care of your day to day stuff, gets you settled in was like, Hey, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll come by your, I was staying at the club's training facilities where they had a hotel. I'll come by and pick you up and we'll, uh, go get dinner tonight. So I was like, perfect. Um, great. Seven o'clock. Perfect. Seven o'clock rolls around. No one comes and I'm kind of hungry. And again, I'm like kind of in an isolated place not where you could just order like you know, pizza down the block and eight o'clock comes nine o'clock comes. Nobody, nobody comes to, to like take me for food. I'm like, something's up for sure. So I get this knock on the door. I'm like, finally dinner time, you know? And it's the son of the vice president. Yeah. I'm like ready to go eat. He's like, Hey, uh, the guys want to talk to you downstairs. They take me downstairs and they just say, they're all kind of sitting around the table and they go, listen, man, uh, the Turkish FA didn't approve of the contract. So unfortunately you won't be playing for Bursaspor. And that was it. And I don't know how much of that is actually true, whether I don't want to go down the conspiracy thing where it's like they they signed it to show that they did it, even though knowing that they couldn't actually approve of it. So for like the fans or to appease the fans and say we did the deal, but it fell through due to rules and those kinds of things instead of because they had announced it before I ever even signed the deal. It was on live TV the day before that I had signed with Bursa. And we hadn't even finished negotiating the deal. Like it was live TV and I was signing a blank piece of paper. So under that impression, they were like, and so I'm wondering if maybe they did that to be on the back end to be like, oh, he did sign the deal. It just didn't get approved by the FA. Or if that was really the case and they and they wanted me. And um, that's how I actually ended up back in Major League Soccer. But the biggest detail that threw me off that night is we're back at the hotel like 2.30 in the morning when this pre- when the owner's son or whatever is calling saying, how can we get this deal done? This agent's looking at me going, take the deal, take the deal. And he looks me in the eyes and he goes, do it for my dead father. What? He goes, if I show up back home, I've missed the passing of my father-in-law and I don't have money to show for this. What am I going to do? Do it for my dead father. And right away, I was like, I'm in another planet. And I felt heartbroken for the guy. But at the same time, he was leveraging death against me to sign a deal. And I was absolutely mind blown. And I was so uncomfortable. And you know when you get those like butterflies in your stomach. And in times that you're very uncomfortable. It just didn't go away for like a 24 hour period. And I was just like something's not right. And finally when the deal got done I was so excited. They took me out to dinner that night yeah. before I actually. The second night they took me out to dinner. And the whole city was shaking my hand. Nobody knew that the deal was not happening. Like people knew who I was already in this town. And it was during Ramadan I believe. And so everybody's fasting during the day and then eating, drinking at night. So it was this giant park full of people and I was just meeting everybody. And these were like the bigwigs of like the town, right? And so I was like talking to everybody We were playing backgammon Turkish coffee, like good night. But like the whole night was like a, basically a giant goodbye to everybody <laughs> that I thought I was going to be working for. And so it was a really, you know, I've had some really interesting uh, experiences, but uh, yeah, that's, that's my uh, bursa experience. Yeah, I've never actually, said that whole story out loud I've, I've i've
1: i can't even imagine what goes through your head and and you're still what 20 25
0: 25 26 and this is right 2009 so this is right before the world cup and i was playing regularly and my whole goal was to go to the world cup so like find a place where you're going to play games and so that's where i ultimately ended up back in major league soccer because none of the other options were had possibilities of playing games or guaranteed not guaranteed you don't want to say guaranteed but like a, a good possibility of getting games to stay relevant in the national team. And
1: what was that the main reason why you then ended up in the MLS?
0: Yeah, so for me it was one, I wanted to be playing games regularly again. So it'd been like hot cold, hot cold for two years in Germany where I played, I don't know, 30 games or 30 something games in two seasons, which, you know, it's like every other game or something like that. And that wasn't good enough for me. But I had done a good job of staying fit. And when I had my national team opportunities, playing well enough to stay relevant, which is hard, right? When you're not getting games and so my goal was like i i it's, there's got to be an easier way right, right. than than doing run, running by myself to like stay fit or like when my team doesn't play going and doing extra workouts there's got to be a better way to this there's got to be a way to play every weekend and so um bursa was a great opportunity they really needed a left back um and the turkish football was actually a, an attractive style of play that i i was looking forward to playing and then it was kind of like don't digress too much um to a league that is like well you know you've been you've moved on past that. You've, you've grown from that and you need to continue to push yourself. Don't fall back into a comfort zone. And I never played in MLS. And so I thought it was a great opportunity to continue my career. And that was another unique experience itself (laughs) (laughs) to say the least.
1: So you, you ended up in uh, FC Dallas. How was that coming from the, from the European almost top game, obviously, and and playing against Bayern Munich and, and then you land in the MLS and with everything that that comes with, how, how was that, initial
0: experience? Well, oddly enough, I never wanted to go to Dallas. So my agent was saying, no, he wants to go to Salt. There was the teams that were interested. I I went onto this list, right? And Dallas was top of the list and they wanted me. And Dallas at the time, I'd heard a lot of bad things about as an organization. It's since become a lot better. But um, I'd heard a lot of bad things about the coach. Um, The way he coaches, the way he develops um, was very college style, very just not what I, I wanted. So they were saying, no, 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 he doesn't want to go there. Trade him, trade his rights to uh, Salt Lake or Colorado the other teams that were interested so I ended up in Dallas and, and it, it was just for me it was just a relief right a comfortable place to I ended up playing right back the whole year but uh a comfortable place to be like back home again you know I built a house that was like oh I'm back in the states uh you know I'm happy I know I can foresee that I'm gonna get minutes uh if I do things the right way and those kinds of things so on one uh, sense it was a relief um but it was it was also short lived in Dallas. It was only one year basically um, that I was there before I was traded,
1: and that was in the lead up to the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, obviously.
0: Yeah. So that that lead up, I was with Dallas that whole year. Went into the final camp before the World Cup um, for those two weeks, and then was part of the final 30, and then released as the seven that didn't wouldn't be going to the tournament. So it was, it was quite heartbreaking, but. You know, everybody's on a different journey and a different path and you can't look and say, what what could I have done differently? Because, you know, you'll torture yourself.
1: Was that expected at all or
0: did you or were you pretty certain to go to the World Cup? I didn't think I would go to the World Cup. I knew that Bob Bradley had his first choice in Johnny Bornstein, who he had drafted himself at Chivas, turned into a, a left back from a striker or attacking position. You know, Bob formed and shaped him into the player that he wanted and had invested a lot of time in him and, and and quite liked him for his, you know, his reasons. And I knew I know that the World Cup after like 16, 17 position, it's all depth, right? It's all versatility. Can you find a guy looking back if I had played right back, left back, left midfield, uh holding midfield on occasion, center back like I did the last years of my career? Perhaps, right? Perhaps I could have made that squad but at the time i was a left back and a left back only in their eyes and it's a depth thing so if you can take a guy who can play at the time like a demarcus beasley who can play left midfield left back right midfield can fill in anywhere drop him at striker great you've got cover You've got Carlos Bocanegra who can step out if you're going to put another center back in the middle. You know, it's a depth thing to where, at the end of the day, as a coach, you want to bring as many attacking options as you can, right? For that unique opportunity where you want a Wondolowski on the field, where you want a unique player on the field, a Julian Green who scores in his first touch in a World Cup. You want those odd opportunities instead of dropping eight players of your 23 as defenders and their backups. You'd rather have a, 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 a enough cover of multiple guys that can play multiple positions so you can fill the roster out with the creative guys, right? Who might have a couple great sessions in in camp during the World Cup and say, you know, if, if this guy gets this chance, I got to put him in as opposed to a defender where it's just like, if that guy gets injured, maybe he'll play, you know? Right. It's, I, I know enough to know that that's, that's what it's about. I think that I, if it was a few years later and I was playing multiple positions, I could have had more of a argument. But I, I kind of knew that Um, going into camp is more of a formality, but I hope deep down that, that I could prove myself in a way that to be fair, the the last game we played Czech Republic, uh, before they, they cut the team and I didn't play well. I didn't, I, I was too much on my mind, couldn't handle it and just didn't play well. And like, if it was based on that game alone, I didn't deserve to go. Um, I came in the second half and just didn't play well, you know, and that's the reality of it. I don't think it had anything to do with that game, but that game, I definitely didn't have a good one.
1: Did he just accept it or or was it a bit of a depressing time after that?
0: It was for a while. It, It was in a lot of ways just because when they released us, they sent Jesse Marsh out into the hallway. And Jesse Marsh had been working with the team since January of that year. So this is a guy who hadn't been through the process with us didn't have a history of national team camps. I think he had one cap under Bob actually before he retired, which is no 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 knock on his ability to deliver news. But I found it odd that we had spent four years pushing this hard as a team and as a family. And uh, Bob, for whatever reasons, sent out his lowest assistant to let seven guys know in a hallway who already knew that they were getting cut. So... After that, each guy went into a room by himself, and they were shaped in like a half circle. The coaches and Bob would give his like whole like you know I think you did a great job, you prepared well, and you know we you know we wish you the best of luck. Unfortunately, it's only twenty three guys, and that was it. And I felt that for guys who had put that much time and energy into building this, who were part of the journey, who were contributing in Central America in really tough conditions on qualifiers, deserved more of a, just, just give me five. I know you're preparing for a world cup. I know there's a ton of stuff on your plate. It's completely overwhelming. I don't discredit that at all for Bob and his staff, but you can give each guy five minutes of time. Who's put in four years of work, you know? And so that was what I was most bitter about. It's just this whole idea of like, man, I really put my heart and soul into this. And I got a assistant who's been an assistant for, and I love Jesse Marsh, by the way, he's a great guy, but he's not the guy that I want to see uh, releasing me from, from the world cup. You know, he's not the guy I want to see Bob Bradley look me in the eyes and tell me himself it's, it. this isn't going to happen. And it was also an odd thing leading up to that moment too, because they said, keep your phones on till midnight before you go with your family, because we'll let you know, well, this was one o'clock in the morning. So I hadn't heard anything at midnight. You're thinking, maybe I did, maybe I did get in, you know, maybe I did make it. We hadn't heard anything. And so now after that, I was just kind of like bitter where it's like, you know, I wish I would have just been able to look this guy in the eyes and take five minutes and say, you know what, um, I appreciate it. I appreciate everything you did for me. And, you know, and have him say, I appreciate everything you did for me uh, that I did for him. And have that man-to-man thing, which Bob Bradley was so hot on. He was so big on being a man and looking each other in the eyes that I felt um, I was uh, it, I was sold a little short on, on that moment, you know, and, and I got over that. I went for a long walk after that in the streets of wherever we were up in like Princeton, New Jersey or something at the time. And just took a long walk and said, you know what, there's, there's factors in the world that you can't control. And, and, uh, we're all on a different journey. And if the, the my journey takes a right here and those 23 takes a left, right. And it's not the end of the world. Um, and I got over it. I flew to Chicago to meet, uh, Dallas for a game, they started me on the bench just to let me clear my head and not put too much pressure on me that was the worst thing they could have done because i went up to warm up in the second half or maybe first half or something behind the goal and there's the whole in dallas they have a, a like a four or five maybe it's even 10 maybe it's taller of of like bleacher section behind the goal where some of their fans are and they were all chanting us reject this is a day this is a day or two after i think it was 2 days after i flew in the next day and then the next day was the match and this is a I've told somebody this recently. It was the closest I ever came in my life to jumping over the little um, advertising boards and just laying somebody out. And it was the only time in my career. People have said everything to me, and it's just like it's, I've actually like when I when we, I was up warming up uh, for a game in Sweden. And this is a off a little side note, but um, in Sweden we were playing against. Hammerby. Yeah. And those fans were hammering me while I was just jogging up and down the sideline and they were killing me. And I was laughing because it's funny. It's, I love the engagement from the fans and the passion, right? Like to be a player for that team, the same with it was at Gothenburg. Like you had this army behind you of people that would do anything for you. And I loved it. I laughed at it. But at this moment being cut from the national team, I was like inside of me, I was boiling and I was like, Oh my gosh, you know. And you kind of go into your own ego and you kind of talk yourself up and you're just like, I don't deserve this. And and like you realize, like looking back, you're like, they're just fans. They're just having a good time. But like at the time, I was like, how could they say this to me? I'm in like my most sensitive moment and they're calling me U.S. reject. (laughs) And I was like, this is absolutely absurd. But it was fun. You know, like looking back, it's like it's great for a story, right? Uh, It wasn't great at the time, but it's great for a story. (laughs) Um.
1: You've definitely gone through uh, a few ups and downs, to, to say the least. And and even after that, you you had a couple of short stints. You had Chivas, I guess, uh, which, from my understanding and hearing from from other people who've been on here as well, it was quite chaotic. Um, you ended up at the uh, at the Red Bulls and became uh, quite a profile. And uh, but you only ended up staying for a couple of years, almost, right?
0: Yeah. So I I, I moved from Dallas to Chivas. Um Moved to left back and then we had a cup game and got a red card and I moved to center back. And then all of a sudden I became a center back. You know, I started, I played center back the rest of the year and I loved it. It was something new and it was like something exciting where you put a new, your new energy into a new position of learning all these things. Um, but it was a chaotic time. Um, played one year there and then moved to, to to New York in New York. I played two seasons. The second season I ended up having hip surgery. Um, for an injury that I had gotten on my hip in Dallas. Um, and it was just kind of wear and tear. It just eventually was on, un- I was no longer able to perform at the level. Like my mind and eyes weren't working and body weren't working together. So if I saw a ball and it was reacting to it, I had to actually tell my body go instead of it just saying like this natural reaction. And so at a certain level, that's too late. You know, like that guy's gone. That somebody else got that ball. And so I played as long as I could until I had to fix it and ended up not, uh, staying beyond two years there you know and again I had I had I had I've always had issues with authority figures in my career um even before my career I just always had this distrust or this this I hated the abuse of power I hated the way where
1: do you think that comes from
0: well to be honest and I'll share it with you I've never really shared it with people before but um I was actually, uh, and this might not be great for a podcast material, but when I was like 12 years old, I was actually molested by a soccer coach and, uh, going through the therapy of my life with professionals and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, that was pretty much what I derived that from is this lack of trust towards people in positions of power. Um, that would be like the educated answer or reason behind that. It wasn't until I was much older that I started to realize where this comes from, why, um, I have such an issue I'm so calm about so many things, but when it comes to the abuse of power, I had no room for forgiveness, right? I had no ability to, to see that person as another human. I saw them as like an animal who's like abusing their power. And, and, and so I had these issues with coaches. I I always got along, along with teammates. I always got along with people so long as you worked hard and, and, and were a good person. But like when it came to coaches or authority figures, it was like they had one chance with me. And as soon as they burned that, I had no longer an ability to forgive or have perspective or be like, oh, they're human. They make mistakes. It was just like, you're a liar or like you, I don't trust you. And, and, and it's like, you know, again, this is like thinking out loud, but it's, but it's been a process of my life of re- wondering, you know, cause there were times i look back and go, why, why, did, why was I so distrusting of these people? And, and that's what kind of it, it forms from. At least anyway, and I'm not trying to give myself excuses for things no, that, I mean, uh, it, it is a pretty major um, thing. Yeah. And I, and, and I don't ever want to be the guy that's like, I did that because of this, you know, I, which is kind of what's, you know, some of these experiences that I experienced as, as a child, um, and as an adult is what's led me into this position to wanting to make a difference. Right. And, and being in a position to share my stories and share my life and, and hope that that can help other people. Um, and it was never a case where it was just like "woe is me" and uh, feel bad for me. Um, but that that is kind of where it it it. So I would be quick to quick to judge and quick to shut down on people in those positions who sometimes took advantage of um, their power and sometimes abused that power towards people in terms of verbally or physically as coaches or emotionally abused players in ways that I. Because of that experience, I became a very, very, what I think is a very, very good people reader. You learn, you become an adult, right? It, 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 it does things to you as a child that you start to learn to read people and understand people and know you start to understand things around them and you start to be able to sum up people pretty quickly in their intentions. And of course they're not a hundred percent accurate, but you get good at knowing who you can trust and you can't trust. And that's just by through experiences that you've been through. And, and I always felt I was a good judge of character. And whenever I'd get that feeling of like, I can't trust that guy. Um, I never had the ability to be like, well, maybe he's going through some shit too. You know, maybe he's, maybe he's got his reasons. Maybe he doesn't know he's abusing his power, you know, maybe he's, and, and so I was always extra harsh and extra critical on people that were teachers, bosses, uh, you know, top of the food chain that I saw manipulating, um, those types of things or just not being honest. You know, I, 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 you know, you can't bullshit a bullshitter and, and I would recognize that and hold them to a higher standard that perhaps I shouldn't. And, and that affected my relationships with a lot of coaches, which, you know, you don't know at the time until you work through those processes of why, why was it that I got along with all my teammates, but it always had issues at a certain point with coaches, regardless of how much I liked them. I would eventually not like them anymore for not all of them. I had some great coaches that I liked, but some people, not just coaches either, but people in, in higher positions of power. Why why would I hold them to such a high standard that most people probably couldn't live up to? Right. You know, is that something that
1: you have um, sort of psychologically gotten help with, or have you worked with somebody with th- through those things or, or how have you dealt with it? Cause it sounds like today you're kind of in a place you can analyze it. You can sit on the outside and, and sort and, and look in and hopefully even highlight issues or, or help others with it but did you seek or did you receive any kind of help or to deal with that or are these things that you have just come to kind of terms with yourself
0: yeah so to be quite honest um it all happened at a young age and my parents knew it happened right but i never told them i refused i told them, no, no no nothing happened well, but uh, the parents they know they know something's up right they knew by my reaction by my unwillingness to be around said person um and they, they they knew all that stuff. During the same window, actually, uh, my best friend at the time killed himself. So as an 11, 12-year-old, you've been through a few things in a year um, where my best friend, we shared a birth date. We shared every interest. We were with each other every single day, who was at the time very much into uh, Nirvana and kind of the Pacific Northwest um, music scene and saw in idolized Kurt Cobain and at a certain point felt that, uh, he should go down the same route and killed himself. And this added up to the other thing. You know, there was major changes happening in my life. I became a man at 12, 13 years old, 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, and my parents knew all that. Right. And, uh, so at that point I started getting, you know, counseling as a child. Um, and then went through those processes, even at 16, 17, going through counseling, actually we ended up having at 16, I called my parents and told them, this is what actually happened. You know, uh, I was watching an episode on TV. I, I was actually had a broken leg. I was in bed up late at night and there was a show on about coaches and, and abuse with children and I called my parents and told them and then we filed the report. It became this whole actual legal thing where this person was arrested and we went through that process of of going through that. And the reason I've become so comfortable is because I heard and this is, you know, obviously a a, a topic for another time, but the people that came out of the woodwork that had experienced the same thing from this person, but whose lives were far worse, whose reactions to those events had messed them up for life. These people didn't bounce back. And I, here I was now as an adult, having still been successful despite what I'd been through and also being in a unique position to have a voice, you know, to now say, okay, you know what? You've survived something that's traumatic in in its ways, but now you're in a unique position to make a difference. How can you go out there and make a difference? And I have been through those therapies and counseling and those types of things that have helped me uh, bring that to surface and be more comfortable with it. Um, But I also look at it realistically and say, I've survived this. And these people who experienced the same thing from the same person, if not worse, have ended up really, really bad, you know, and in life changing um, substance abuses and all kinds of stuff that have affected these people for life where every day they wake up and and they're going through something extremely worse than me and I've been fortunate enough to end up pretty normal mm-hmm. and in a unique position with a blessed life to be able to take what I've been through and share it with the world that's my goal right and so I've been through those professional stuff as well as like looking inward to process that be comfortable with that and know that if you've been through that and I've ended up Where I'm at now, and I just sit and say, you know what? I feel bad for myself. I've been through all this stuff. This is terrible. I wish the world would just be nicer to me. You know, you have no idea what I've been through and use it as this crutch. Then what have I gained, right? But if I can take what I've been through, which is this experience, digest it, and find a way to say, you know what? I'm actually one of the few that's lucky. And if I can go out there and share that voice, which I haven't done, you're actually the first that's hearing this. I mean, many people know, but you're the first that's hearing this in this form and whoever's going to hear this will hear this in this form. Um, we'll be able to go out and prevent some kid from taking his life or help somebody who's been through the same thing as me because it is happening out there. You know, it's unrealistic to think it's not happening. Right. Um, and to be able to give this kid a voice and say, you know what? That guy made it through it. That guy is doing okay. I can do the same. That's the goal of all this, right? Is to like get out of your own way and know that you've survived it and you're okay. And there's somebody out there who you can help with that information. And that's my goal now as an adult in my post career. I never felt there was really the forum for me during my career to share this. I didn't want to use it to bring spotlight on myself. And I don't want to use it until I can team up with the right people to help go out there and make a difference. Whether that's sharing that talking or whether that's in situations like this where I... I can, you know, uh find a way to help people. And if it's that one person that I help in my lifetime, then I feel whatever I went through is is worth it, right? You've yeah. saved somebody else in some way. So, uh not to say that you want to go through things like that to be able to help people, but um to be able to bounce back and help somebody, I think is is the end goal.
1: Are you actively working on any initiatives uh around that to to help others or or do you see yourself in the future to to do something with it?
0: Absolutely. I've got a huge um I'm an aspiring philanthropist um, and I'm aspiring because I'm not a philanthropist in the way that say the punter, Steve Weatherford, former punter for the New York Giants is, you know, he's out in the community all the time and that's an end goal of mine. I would love to give my time and energy um, to making a difference. And I'm not part of any initiatives right now involved with that because I want to be able to team up with i've had some conversations with the rain network which is the rape abuse incest national network Mm -hmm. um, based out of dc um back when i was playing just wanting to to let them know that you know these are my experiences and i'd love to 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 be part part of it but i've never really felt um prepared on both sides so logistically of a team together to go out and and make a difference you know i didn't want it's a very unique thing that you've been through and you want to make sure you present it in a right way. That's, that's, um, I guess not about me. You know, I don't want, I don't ever want my experiences to be about me. I don't want them to be like, uh, I don't want anybody after to rub me on the back and go, you're so strong. Right. I want them to say, you know, you're inspiring others. Not, I don't want the attention on me. I want that, I want people to hear it and say wow let's go make a difference for others you know and that's the end goal and so it's building out that team that that you can do uh something like that
1: mm-hmm. yeah and I'm, I'm sure there's multiple different ways because in a way it's, it's also just to even to highlight it the, the topic right to get people out of the the woodwork so to speak and talking about it and bringing it up and doing something about it and just a side note there was actually these this guy from from gothenburg who was a um, he was an athlete, a high jumper. That happened to him when he was a young athlete, and he didn't bring it up until he was past forty five, fifty. And he wrote a book about it, and that really r- raised the profile, and it did put the the spotlight on him very, very much so.
0: And I think um, that's a great thing, right? I mean, it puts the spotlight on him, but he it raised the profile, and the idea is to create discussion, right? You yeah. want to create awareness and discussion and help grow this thing and not always sweep it under the rug of like oh that doesn't happen you know it does happen um and i just always wanted to make sure that i say it in a way and that i'm prepared to discuss it in a way um where the intentions match the execution of it i guess um that that it has the end result not to say like i'm holding on to this until it's this big yeah yeah, of course massive thing but it's just that i want to make sure that um the intentions of it all are are in the right place and that it's 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 you know my story is able to 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 help people and in the right way and and create that type of um conversation and discussion and, and awareness um i just haven't stopped to try to put that team together you know it's and and it's definitely something that's like high on my my list of objectives in my life um to be able to to share with the world but it's just about you know doing it the right way
1: yeah um well first thanks for really for sharing i can't even imagine what it's like to go through something like that Uh, i do appreciate it though as it is something we know happens and a topic that needs to be raised that typically isn't talked about that much and I think that, you know, you might be the right guy to do that, just seeing, you know, who you are as a person and the experience that you have with it and and the way that, you know, you might have an, a huge voice uh, and an impact on it. So uh, I appreciate that. just kind of wrapping up on the on the part of of your career Um, because after the Red Bulls you went through an injury you ended up at Montreal for about a season right?
0: Yeah I was one year there and that was a a very eye-opening experience for me because I went from being you know an all-star three years in a row still on the national team to slowly fading out injuries kind of taking their toll and then having the surgery and then nobody wanting me. To where I was asked to go on trial at Montreal, and that's pretty humbling, to go from having that type of success and demand. Where you know being traded has its well, on their own reasons. Sometimes it's salary cap, sometimes it's whatever. But um, to then be asked to go on trial to pre-negotiate a deal that was at about an eighty percent pay cut. It's pretty humbling, and, and but you, you take it in stride, and your ego takes a hit, and you just say, well, do you want to keep playing or not? Because this is what you have in front of you. And I think there could have been better ways uh, for, uh, again, I think my agents could have worked harder. I think they could have put themselves out there more. I think there was unique scenarios for me somewhere out there that they could have uh, discovered, but they didn't, and no blame to them. It didn't happen, and then I went on and tried out at... Um, when the team Montreal was in Florida and training camp and was offered a one year contract, which was actually one of the first one year contracts with no like nothing on the back end that the MLS had had done, I believe. But it was a great scenario for me to say, you know what? Fine. Take the pay cut. Prove myself Went and proved myself um, had my rights taken the next year by Orlando. That was another unique experience um, and then ended up in Gothenburg, which is actually an unbelievable I had an unbelievable time, you know, I just, I, I found more joy in doing something new. If my life was going to be confined to, um, training with the reserves and teenagers, you know, a few days a week and playing in reserve games. Um, and that's no blame to anybody else. That was just the way, the point of which that I was in my career in terms of the way they viewed me. So, um, you know, kind of at that point, there was some options. You have like, you know, some ideas in, in Asia and stuff like that. And, and then kind of weighing some options against kick and kick came in strong. And they were like, well, let's talk about it. And yeah. they started, they were aggressive with their, the opportunity. I was like, well, I could take this that has a shelf life of three, four more years, good quality of life, or I could take this and put the same energy that I put into soccer into a new industry and an industry that has no shelf life. If you're good, you can do this forever. You can enjoy, you can find a voice and, 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 and share the game in a way that, um, and, and, and speak to the fans and speak to people and connect to people in a way that I never really had the opportunity to, as a player, you know, be able to talk about the game and celebrate the game and celebrate the growth here in the U S. And so I, I just jumped on it and said, you know what, um, let's take this chance. And it's been fun.
1: Yeah. You got pretty much straight into it after your last club in, in Gothenburg. So uh, it seems like you didn't have that much of a, I guess, transition or readjustment and be like, wow, now I'm done playing. Like you were just straight into it and started working, right?
0: Yeah, I jumped straight into it basically within a few months, but I had gotten married last summer. So it was a nice little long honeymoon of just time together and, and um, that was enjoyable. Um, and then it was jumping straight into something next, which I think more players need to do is prepare for that day. Don't yeah. wait till it's over because when it's over, that's when you have the problems and your only your most relevant time in media is when you're a player. As soon as that career ends your relevance and your will or your need or your, the, 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 the industry's want for you goes down unless you've built a name for yourself, whether it's a, for personality reasons, whether you're a good character, whether you give a good interview. And so for me, um, it's, uh, I was listening to, I went to a dinner recently and it was the vice president of Showtime sports was giving a speech to a group of like 20 of us uh, in meatpacking district at STK. And he said, um, it was an athlete's quarterly dinner, the magazine. And he'd said, you know, now more than ever, players need to be involved in media. Go out there and get media training. Put yourself out there. Do interviews. Do podcasts. Show your personality. Make your, make your brand felt. Because if you wait... Till the day your career ends and goes, hey guys, I'm I'm interesting, you know, and all you've given is sound bites your whole career. Um, you have no value, and that's a unique thing that I learned from him um, that I hope to be able to teach to to some of these these kids um, coming up, and even some of the guys on the back end of their careers is like get involved, get out there, start developing your voice, you know, spend time on radio, on podcasts, uh, go work with shows, put yourself out there to do occasional broadcasts if you have a bi- a bye week, you know, do. Radio stuff, whatever it is, just go out there and start building your brand because it's never going to be bigger than it is now, you know, when you're playing.
1: Yeah. And I think that and and also, you know, as a player, because you get catered all the time, you get taken care of, you almost take no in, own initiative. Mm-hmm. You don't need to pick up the phone to hustle for for a job or, or make that sell or whatever that might be. So, I think that's an important part of that as well in mm-hmm. getting just trained and dealing with people because when do. you're a player, everything is taken care of. You know, you just show up, you train, you play, you answer
0: a couple of questions, and and that's about it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, and that's a great point because um, there was I had a conversation with like a, a a guy recently that's involved in media, his whole whole life, former broadcaster, and he talked about a former player that recently called him in tears, mm-hmm. had a successful career, but didn't think about what's next until it was far after it was done, and was just saying like, um, you know, I don't want to say the guy's name, but was saying how, is this what my life's going to be? Am I going to be a youth coach for the rest of my life? Is this who I've become? You know, like I had this glorious career and there was so much love being driven my way. You know, I had my ego fed, you know, appropriately every single day for years. And now here I am working seven days a week coaching um, and then doing those kids matches on the weekends. Is this what I've become? And and it was another eye-opening conversation that I was privy to in terms of their conversation. I wasn't there for the conversation itself, but um, it's eye-opening, you know, that there we all think we're untouchable as athletes and players, and that uh, we're invincible, and that our careers will never end, or that we're all gonna retire with billions of dollars and just live nice. But it's just not the reality for ninety-nine percent of athletes. It's not the reality, and quite honestly, you've got to feed your soul too, right? If it's not, nobody really wants to retire on the beach when they're 30, you know, it sounds fun, but what happens when you get cabin fever after six months or 35 or whatever age that you retire at, um, you've got to find other interests and you've got to dive in and take those chances. And it's scary. I was scared at times where it's just like, man, I'm never going to step on the field as a professional again. But I said, well, fuck it you know like there's so much more to life there's so many cool things out there to experience there's so much normalcy um that once you've tasted normalcy it's so fun and you crave it you crave i i it's it's friday right now you know i'm not thinking while i'm talking to you how is this conversation going to affect my sleep tonight right so that it affects how i play tomorrow how is this messing with my day which is usually set in stone i'm just saying you know it's weekend you know If I go home late, I go home late. I can talk all night long. I can stay up. I can have enjoyable weekends where you, you know, those things are taken from, you get those back, but you have to be willing to really embrace that and kind of be fearless because like you said, you've been catered to your whole grown-up life. You've been spoon fed on different levels of whatever level of people's made it from. But like you said, in a good professionally run club, everything's done for you. Your job is to just focus on the field and, um, that's hard to get over.
1: just want to touch a, l- a little bit on, on kick. I know we kicked off the conversation on that end, um, to somebody who is not really familiar with it. How do you typically describe it?
0: Well, kick as a brand, um, built into our Copa 90 partnership with big balls films is considered the largest independent digital soccer network. Um, and the idea is to be a disruptive media source, not disruptive in a, an in antagonistic way, but disruptive in the sense that we want to be the go-to spot of people, um, across all levels. Are you a casual fan? Are you a hardcore fan? Are you a new fan? We want to give you something to get behind. Mm-hmm. So whether it's creating evergreen content, intense content for our football obsessed, um, fans who just crave as much information in a short amount of time as you can give them or the person who's just like, you know, I kind of like soccer. Tell me more. We want to give you something unique, whether it's a documentary, whether it's something unique that's like, wow, that's a really cool experience. I would love to experience that. You've just made me a step closer to being a fan or a fan for life in some cases, you know, and to create an offer, a product and a space in a community where people of all interest levels in the game can go and feel welcome, feel included, not feel intimidated, not feel like, you know, we don't want to create that whole like supreme, you know, sneakerhead thing where it's just like, well, unless, you know, unless you're part of the cool club, you're not part of the club. You know, we want to have that edge in terms of our style, the way we tell our stories, the way the way that we view or share the game but we want it to be inclusive we want everybody to be part of this journey of celebrating the growth of our sport here and also the unique voice that we have as americans in this global game Mm -hmm.
1: are there any things that you do in your role specifically to evolve or to become better and do
0: you have any any mentors yeah so i i watch all my own stuff so, in the beginning, I tried not to because y- you hate your voice once you hear it, right? When you hear it come out, you hate it. And you say, How will anybody want to listen to that? Like, what a whiny person that is, or even not whiny, but like, what a squealy voice, or what a voice that's just like, Ugh, like turn it off. And they used to go through takes and, and, and they'd go through, um, before they'd put out the final edits, they'd play it loud and in our little like editing area and, I'd be like, turn that down. Nobody wants to hear that, you know? But then I realized that it's just like watching game tape. You have to watch and review. And I have a mentor now named Alan Hopkins, who is a former broadcaster who broadcasts for everybody, ESPN, Fox, or Fox Soccer, or Fox Sports World, or what it used to be. Um, and he's done everything. And he's a guy that I'm looking to now for guidance in in the world of, telling me honestly what can i do better how can i be better how can i tell a better story how can i be more concise how can i share the game in a way that's unique what can i give somebody that they don't already have via twitter or instagram or snapchat facebook you know youtube all those things how can like what's that easter egg what's that bit of difference where do i have a value in this game and and he's um, that guy that I, that I'll, I'll be looking to as I continue to try to push myself and grow. Um, I also am working with an, a manager now as well. Who's, who's trying to, again, give that feedback the same way you would as a player, you know, and then being honest, being comfortable enough to watch my own stuff. And that takes, uh, that took me a while to where you're willing to watch yourself and say, why are my hands like moving like that? Right. Or Why? am I using my hands too much so to sell a point that I'm not able to do with my voice? Am I, is my voice not matching my expressions? Am I, you know, and you have to be overly critical. You have to do that, but also be satisfied with a daily product, right? You have to, because you never, it's never, especially with daily videos, it's never perfect. And it's never, when it comes to video, just like with a, with a podcast or anything that you do creatively, You never put it out and go, this is the best thing I've ever made. It'll be good and you'll like it, but it never feels complete. You go, oh man, I could have asked this a different way or I could have said this a different way or described. If I would have added one word in that sentence, it would have changed the whole dynamic of this interview or, um, or the way that I'm, I'm telling the story to, to a camera and those types of things I try to focus on, um, without beating myself up daily. Cause you know, that's the other hard part is that, um, you still want to enjoy the process of the creative process and the raw bit of of yourself. You don't want to become a robot. You don't want to become too structured to where it's like you're so good technically that you've actually lost what made you you, you know? Um, and try to find that fine balance. How about this one, the tricky wing appears? I mean, that's where the term getting schooled came from right there. <laughs> Make it led by Djakovic, given away
1: by De Rosario. He was imploring his teammates to get on the end of that header.
0: Here's the left
1: winger. Look at the skill. We're getting towards the end here. I know. I know we could probably go on yeah, for, for a couple yeah, more um, hours. Um, I just have a set of uh, rapid fire questions, but please feel free to to elaborate if you will.
0: Okay. Um, favorite team? Ajax. Why? For some reason, I was always obsessed with the the youth aspect of Ajax, like kids playing amongst men like kids dominating amongst men and that to me was like a really cool thing where it's just like i always believed when i was younger that like ix had some sort of cheat sheet of development where it's like if you went there and it was always my dream like i wish i actually just like take me i'll I'll play for free you know as a, when i was first starting my career and even most of the way through it, it was just like they have this thing there i just really like this idea of like developing stars and developing really good players through, like, humble settings. And, of course, you've got Zlatan and, and, you know, um guys from the more uh, modern era, Um but there's so many good players that have come out of Ajax, and I've just always, I don't know, I've just always obsessed over them. The biggest moment in your career? Probably signing with FC Northland. Obviously, the U.S. national team, my first cap was probably my most emotional because when I was like in eighth grade and stuff, I used to sign the yearbooks, Heath Pierce, US national team. Really? Yeah. And I didn't know this either till recently, like a while after uh, friends and my parents and stuff showed me old yearbooks where I'd signed like that. I was a member of the US national team, <laughs> like 12, 12 years old. And so those were my grand aspirations. And like, that was like the big goal back then before we had uh, growing up, we didn't have a professional league really. That was had so much exposure until 96, I guess. So you watched you, I watched videos of like, 500 greatest saves, 100 greatest goals like on VHS and and you had your national team. Um, that was what you heard the most about and then teams in Europe. And so achieving that was my biggest goal. But becoming a professional was also one where it was just like, there's a lot of people along the way that said, you got no chance, you know, and it's kind of like that prideful moment where it's like, oh, I, you know, I kept my head down and worked hard and I achieved a goal through granted i had a a great upbringing my parents were great they put me in the position to succeed a lot of people helped me tremendously along the way but at the end of the day you you, your hard work also contributes to that and so that was like a prideful prideful moment in my probably the most prideful moment in my career best player you played with best player i played with
1: thierry henry Do I even need to ask why? Yeah. Or is there anything that you can say about him that's not common knowledge?
0: It's interesting. He's, I wish that I had experienced Thierry at different parts of my career too, to get that kind of taste of like a ruthless professional. Ruthless in the sense that like Bradley Wright Phillips won the golden boot and Thierry said, yeah, but he missed like 40 chances. He could have scored 60 goals this year. Some, something ludicrous like that, right? Where it's like, you're the top scorer in the league. And people ask him about it. And it's, it's annoying, right? It's, it's, it's aggravating to hear like, are you th- that insane that like that's your response? But th- that's, a, that mentality is what's driven him, right? That's what's driven him that far. And to be around that, I wish that I'd been around that during my developmental years to have somebody be like, when I'm walking around 21 years old and got man of the match, you know, with my chest out thinking like I made it, have someone go, look, man, you haven't done shit, you right. know? remember that ball that you crossed that we could have scored on a counter attack and you put it up into the top row. Yeah. You know, if you did that, we could have won the game a lot. You know, those are the, t- the ways he sees the game. And it was r- hard for a lot of us to understand, especially coming from different backgrounds um and, and different upbringings. But you could see where that like single minded drive came from and what made him that good. And you just wish, man, if I could tap into that in myself, It also seems kind of an isolating and miserable mentality to have at times when things aren't going right or say you're injured or whatever and you can't, you, he's so in control of himself and his drive that I would think that that any sort of like detours would mess you up pretty bad mentally. But, um, obviously he's achieved everything. Um, but it's a unique perspective on, on the game and, and ambition. Um, the best player you played against. The best player I played against on the day was Ronaldinho. And that was another thing that was just kind of... We played against Brazil with the U.S. national team in Chicago back in 2007, I think, or 8. And he was running around the field laughing and joking. And like it was like a fun day in the park. And you just envied that ability to be so connected to the game and do such incredible things when you got the ball. I mean, that day, Robinho was really, really good as well and i mean statistically the best player i've played against is is messi but that day was like whatever he didn't he was he was not interested he played a half they subbed him out i think it was like a some sort of obligation and and uh but the best player on like on the field that day uh, in my career is, was definitely Ronaldinho.
1: any advice to the 20
0: year old heath pierce to i would tell him to trust in the process and be patient. Uh, I think too often things were hammered home to me that I took literally. So like you need to be playing every game or it's going to affect you. And I took that stuff literally to the sense where it's was like if I didn't play, I saw this 11, 50, 10, 20-year plan unraveling in front of my eyes, right? And I think to the 20-year-old me, I would have found... a. I would tell him to have like a, a a good balance. Uh, A lot of the stuff that the way I approached the game was, was good, but I would just say, be more, be, be patient, you know, like trust in your abilities, trust in your process. If you're good enough, like it'll always come through and you'll always be fine. And just, you know, like we discussed earlier, just trust people more, forgive more, you know, treat, like just be, be more aware of, The flaw that is human, I guess, you know, that's what I would say. Um, It would have made for definitely interesting and different experiences as an adult. You get to have dinner
1: with three people in the football world, past or present. Let's assume language is not a barrier. So who are the three people and where would you bring them? I would
0: want to take Ibrahimovic, Thierry Henry, because I would love to see those two guys with the egos that they have at a table together and talking in the world of language that they talk about. And then the third one would be (laughs) the third one that I would want there is Pep Guardiola because he can't stand either of those guys. And I would love to be at a dinner with the three of them because I respect them all on the highest level and they all see the game so differently and their personalities are all so different that they just sit at a table for one night. I could only imagine what the conversation would be and the debates that would happen mm-hmm. and the disagreements and the agreements, but like this mutual love, hate, and respect that would go into that would be probably one of the greater experiences of my life, actually. And and, and I never had an idea to put those three maybe we can get those three at a table, you know, we got to try it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, get them on a, uh, on a three person podcast to just say, tell me what football is to you and, uh, <laughs> hear them all, uh, break it down. But those, that I think that would be such a cool experience because you have a lot of people that you would get at a table and they would just dial it down for their political correctness or yeah. for the idea of, uh, agreeance. Um, but I don't think any of those guys would have any problem of going like, like you're an idiot. Stop talking. And Uh then like just yelling at each other in a way that's just like so respectful. And the fact that like what you're saying is so stupid, why are you saying that? But like outlandish at the same time. Whereas I think too many, any other people you get them at a table would be an interesting conversation. But me as like a person that maybe doesn't know them, it might be dialed down. And those three guys would probably just have at each other for hours and by the end of it probably be laughing and where do you take them oh wow yeah i forgot about that now they that's gotta so eat now bad. that now, now they gotta eat food because now they're they're hungry right <laughs> these three guys have been arguing for hours and the food's not out uh i would i would say we can go to uh get ourselves a nice little private room at soho house you know these guys would probably prefer that no pictures you know no paparazzi that's an easy that's an easy way out though um let's go more raw I would say um we'll take him to what is the name of the taco place man? um Tacombi Yeah, yeah so like that, you that's know, a good spot. yeah I like it it's 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 a little, it's it's super casual but it, it's a unique place that I've always liked and the menu's simple so like at least we can get through it's like six different types of tacos we don't need to argue over the type of food they can get through that we order it have plates of food it's a lively atmosphere so I'd want them to feel comfortable i wouldn't want them in like a dark quiet room so house might be a little too quiet where it's like this is awkward guys you know thanks for coming you know <laughs> i don't i don't I, i'm i heath you know the nice meeting all of you except for you thierry uh thanks for coming and uh talk you know now we'll get into a live place um i don't think any of them drink though to be honest um, uh not that i know like I, I think they'll have a beer but neither of them none of them are maybe Guardiola will have maybe more than a He'll glass have of wine. some red wine. Yeah. yeah, but but I think Thierry and them, they'd it'd, it'd be now. I'm starting to second guess my decision here. You know, these guys are all interesting, and now I'm visualizing, and I'm like, you guys are the most boring guys on earth. Why would I invite you? You know, like I'm never inviting you guys to my <laughs> exactly. to my dinner again. Uh, but yeah, I think that 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 works. That'd be a fun fun experience. It sounds good.
1: How can people get hold of you or or follow? I'm on just
0: about every type of social media, so. I'm so on Twitter. On Twitter at Heath G Pierce, which I'm switching over to Heath Pierce because by the way, there's another Heath Pierce in Canada and um he seems to be the only other Heath Pierce out there and we kind of battle out for every new piece of social media that comes, like who can take the handle of Heath Pierce first. Right. So Twitter I was on long before him, but I like I thought it was really cool at one point, was doing like the HP three and like these kinds of things where like after a while I was like, Okay, I want my name and it's like oh, it's too late, man. That like, guy took it. But Heath Pierce, Heath G Pierce on Twitter, Heath Pierce on Instagram, Heath Pierce on Snapchat, uh, Heath Pierce on Heath Pierce soccer on Facebook, because for some reason the Heath Pierce one doesn't exist. Or I think I, I think I actually think that was my first ever Facebook back in the day. And then I got rid of it and like lost, it was like Hotmail or like some random email account that I've lost. And now I can't like recover it for some reason. But Yeah. Heath G. Pierce is the only one different that's on Twitter. The rest are all Heath Pierce. Anything you would like to recommend? I would recommend... Coming to New York and getting Shake Shack. No, actually, Shake Shack is is kind of everywhere now. Go to Bill's Burger Bar and get yourself a nice burger and meatpacking. I think there's another one in Midtown now. Or maybe there's multiple, but really good burgers. Especially... You know, I've, I, I, I've, I've never been impressed by the European burger and the whole like eating the burger with a fork and a knife thing has always thrown me off. Um, but that's a really, really good burger place, especially after a few drinks, if you've had a few drinks. So obviously don't want to take my dinner of three there because they won't enjoy it the same way somebody who's had a few drinks would. Last one. Who do you think I should interview on this show? Well, I think you're really prepared. So I think that, you know, we have to go, we have to scale up a little bit here to who I think, uh, would be a good, good conversation with you. Um, let's go with, uh, I think that you should interview Sebastian Erickson from EFCO Gothenburg on this show. He has this fascination with American pop culture and the world that exists in the U S like he's absolutely obsessed with like Texas and all kinds of random things. He wants to have like an air live in like an airstream in the U S like on like a campsite. And he's one of the most fascinating people and bizarre people in the world. Um, and I think that he would be a really, really fun conversation, especially if he did it here in New York. It would be fantastic. And if I could give you, I'll I'll give you one more. It's a little bit more outside the box. Um, I would say Robbie Keane. I think he would be a really fun conversation. I'm trying to think of like other guys in the league that would actually, that actually enjoy normalcy, I guess, you know, enjoy conversation. And he is always, any experience that I've ever had with him is like top class and will just give you whatever you want. He won't, You know, he's not going to, you know, the team played good and we're looking forward to, you know, he could, I think he could sit back and talk and share life and experiences and, and really give a perspective on things, especially coming, um, from kind of one of the smaller, I guess, footballing nations that's sort of relevant now, you know, um, I think that would be a fun one. I would listen to that for sure.
1: Cool. I'll I'll definitely reach out to both of them and. If you ever know if Sebastian's coming to New York, just give me the heads up. But I'll uh, I'll use my connections at uh, at Gothenburg for that one. You should. And, then, uh, and the Robbie, we we got to find a couple of angles to to get to him.
0: No, it's definitely worth it. You know, I would definitely give a, a give any, any any love to you needed because this has been a really fun experience and a run fun opportunity to just chat. You know, you don't get there's not enough chatting going on in the game. There's just uh, too much scripting and too much canned I guess um content you know it's better to just open it up and elaborate and and you you know how can you create a better connection than just two people talking then you know what I mean it's real and I think real is 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 the next step at least especially here in the U.S. is 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 real as what people are starting to crave people want real they don't want something that's written on a teleprompter they don't want something that's um been a line that's been said over and over again so in the halftime talk It's like drop 20 seconds of something you've heard a million times. You know, they want real. And I think that, you know, this is a really cool thing you're doing.
1: Appreciate it. Uh, Heath, well, I mean, obviously we we could probably chat on for for hours and hours and and get some drinks here and and whatnot. But uh, at least for this time, uh, thank you so much. Uh, It's been an incredible pleasure. And uh, best of luck with whatever you have coming up with with Kick. Which is now the the newer name, or is it, has it been announced already, or it, can, can we even say it, that? It depends
0: not? when this thing is
1: is going up.
0: <laughs> uh, it'll, it'll be a few a few good weeks. At okay, least. perfect. Yeah, it'll be it'll be it is uh, kick. Um, perfect. That's the new name, and it's got a really cool logo to go along with it. So new beginnings. Uh, we appreciate where we started, but new beginnings um, for the brand. And I appreciate you having me on. It's been a great time, and like you said, we could talk talk for hours. So it's been a it's been a lot of fun. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to it in iTunes or on the podcast app. Please write a review. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to email me at Sebastian at CoffeeAndFootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. It's at Coffee's Football. Check out the coffeeandfootball.com website. There you'll find any related content and additional info on each guest. This show also lives on SoundCloud and ACAST. Thanks again. Stay tuned for next week's episode.